Here we are again, gazing into the rearview mirror, reflecting on how things look from the last row of the sanctuary. I'm Doug Brook, and many people know that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the big-ticket High Holy Days, but as nearly a minority of Jews worldwide are aware, those three days are just the start of a month so full of holidays that it makes the American notion of the holiday season seem like the time it takes to watch a TikTok video. Just five short days after Yom Kippur, we begin the holiday of Sukkot. Sukkot is a Hebrew word that means booths, or temporary shelters. Sukkah is its singular form, and it's no coincidence that sukkahs are a great place to meet other singles. Sukkot commemorates the Israelites being stuck living in temporary, partially covered huts as shelters for the 40 years that they wandered through the desert to avoid being anywhere long enough to owe property taxes. So, Nearly several Jews everywhere commemorate dwelling in these makeshift dwellings, just as Jews commemorate basically everything. With food. Specifically, we build our own sukkahs and eat outdoors in them. Of course, while Jews commemorate everything with food, equally, we can't have food without a little suffering. I'm not talking about heartburn. So, we also commemorate all our ancestors schlepping, assembling, disassembling, sand getting in their sandals. Hey, I just realized that's where the name of sandals comes from. <laughs> How about that? Anyway, our ancestors schlepping, uh, assembling, disassembling, and generally poor Wi-Fi reception by building our modern-day sukkahs. We often build them with canvas or cloth walls and open roofs, only somewhat covered with fronds and branches, to help us remember the Israelites' suffering by us spending a week being easy targets for rain, cold, and occasional neighbors' footballs falling through the thinly thatched roof and landing in the chumas on the table in front of the one guest still wearing white after Labor Day. Of course, it's his own fault for not changing in the five days since wearing white for Yom Kippur. Now, there are numerous explanations for why the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, almost a few of which don't involve GPS malfunctions. But a prevailing biblical explanation is that the adult generation who left Egypt isn't allowed into the promised land. Even Moses. They're all required to die off first, so the new desert generation who didn't experience slavery firsthand are the ones who enter the land. The only exceptions are the two spies out of 12 who were sent, uh, this is all in the book of Numbers, uh, who didn't fear the promised land uh, named Joshua and Caleb. While Moses was punished for hitting a rock instead of talking to it, a rock band who were teenagers at the time wouldn't let moss grow on a rolling stone and commemorated their adolescence in the desert thousands of years later in their careers by releasing their time-honored 1969 hit sukkah song, Gimme Shelter. Some scholars will have you believe that Sukkot is a harvest holiday described in the Torah. But, as always, that's only the official story. At the start of the month of Tishrei, that's the first month of the Jewish calendar, we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. That's the Jewish New Year. We sing ancient traditional songs like Old Lang Zion, have large festive meals to celebrate surviving extra-long services, and pray for the Messiah to come to help with all the dishes from all those meals. 
Ten days later, on Yom Kippur, we ask forgiveness from each other and from God for letting the dishes sit for over a week without getting cleaned. Some Jews actually make a little dent in the dishes during that week, but any progress is negated by the new piles from the break the fast at the end of Yom Kippur. At this point, there are too many dishes piled not only in the kitchen, but the dining room, dinette, and along the walls separating the rooms. Uh, the house started to smell bad. The rabbis were given a mandate. They had five days to provide a cleaned-out place to eat or deal with sleeping somewhere else. What to do? The rabbis wrestled with this problem together for many long, sleepless nights. They had to. Their wives stacked dirty dishes on their sides of the bed and in their studies. Five days of heated debate passed. Suggestions were debated, including building a Jewish community center, which was rejected because it was too close to the Federation's annual campaign. In an historic moment, the sleepless rabbis suspended the Talmudic principle of for every two rabbis there must be three opinions so they could come up with only one unified answer. Use the old sheds in their backyards as a temporary dining room until the dishes were done. Of course, the sheds were not generally in good condition. The walls had huge gaps and the roofs had decayed away. They quickly reinforced and covered the walls. They decided to put branches across the top, offering some romantic moonlight to come through on clear nights. So, Today, Jews have five days after Yom Kippur to build a sukkah to Eden. To commemorate the completion of building the sukkah, there's a holiday called Sukkot, where we celebrate actually completing a construction project. But the dishes persisted. And every meal in the sukkah made the stacks even worse. After two days of this, the rabbi's spouses forced them to do the dishes until they were done. It took the rabbis five more days to handle it all. This is why after the two bigger holiday days starting Sukkot that are considered Yom Tov, where you can't work otherwise, you, you know, can't electricity, all the fun stuff. There are five more days to the holiday that are still part of it, but less restrictive so that people can actually work in honor of having actually done the dishes. One rabbi had suggested they could simply destroy the dishes but it was pointed out that not only would it be wasteful and destroy many nice china sets that had been received as wedding gifts, but the Greeks had already had this tradition after formal meals and keg parties and nobody wanted to engage in appropriation. The eight days of Sukkot culminate with the finishing of the annual reading of the Torah on Simchat Torah, literally the celebration of the Torah. Of course, this requires rolling the Torahs back from end to beginning, which takes a lot of time. And it got the rabbis out of having to dry the dishes. Sukkot is one of three harvest festivals on the Jewish calendar, the other two being Passover, Pesach, and Shavuot. One thing we do on Sukkot is called shaking the lulav. This is actually a misnomer. Shaking the lulav involves four plant species. What people usually call a lulav is really three of those four, four plant species all tied together. The lulav is really just the long palm frond at the center of the three. So when shaking the lulav, you hold this twined together trio of branches along with an etrog. That's a lemon-looking citrus fruit. 
So shaking the lulav involves shaking together these four species, the etrogue, the lulav, George, and Ringo. Or if you're a couple generations younger, the etrogue, lulav, willow, and buffy. Shaking the lulav is really just waving it in multiple directions. Front, back, left, right, up, down, and awkwardly diagonal when you hand it off to the next person without dropping anything. Because Sukkot falls in the fall, in the heart of football season, the Talmud specifically details how to do the wave at football games, but when it comes to stadiums full of people waving lulavs, it's not expected to catch on until Yeshiva University and the Jewish Theological Seminary start fielding teams on the gridiron. Most everyone who observes Sukkot today shakes the lulav. Its modern height of popularity began in the late 1970s, as it was popularized by a 1976 hit song from Casey and the Sunshine Band, Shake Your Lulav. While most people don't know about Sukkot like they've heard of Rosh Hashanah, Passover, Hanukkah, or having Chinese food on Christmas Eve, as you've heard here, Sukkot is actually woven into popular culture more than one might think. There are many more examples. The Beatles got in on it, trying to create their own twist on the lulav-shaking groove. Ray Charles and the Blues Brothers got into the act with even more detailed instructions for how to move the four species that you're holding in your hands. Even Air Supply, in one of their newest offerings, an officially released song in 2019 that's been a concert staple ever since they first started playing it. But Sukkot's subtle pop culture campaign is not just in music. It's been a mainstay in contemporary films as well. After all, filmgoers everywhere, especially horror fans, will never forget the chills they got in 1997 when they first heard the foreboding whisper, I know what you did, last Sukkot. But even before that, in 1988, the Wayans Brothers film, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, was released. This comedy was a parody, a satire of the 1970s genre known as black exploitation films, which sounds bad because it perpetuated stereotypes, but is actually an early genre where black characters and communities are the heroes and protagonists instead of the bad guys, victims or sidekicks that are either punchlines or simply punched or killed. These are films like Cleopatra Jones and Blackula and, of course, Shaft, among many others. Instead of trying to explain the genre, just hearing the story of the 1988 Wayans Brothers film should give you the idea. Jack Spade, played by Keenan Ivory Wayans, returns home from a hitch in the army to find his brother Junebug has died from an overdose 
of gold chains. Junebug's tragic death leaves his widow Cheryl and mother Ma Bell alone to fend for themselves. Ma Bell throws two inept thugs, including Damon Wayans, sent by the evil white guy Mr. Big down a flight of stairs. Junebug owes $5,000 to Mr. Big for his gold chain addiction, and Mr. Big tries to force Cheryl into prostitution to pay off the debt. Our protagonist, Jack Spade, recruits his old friends to go after Mr. Big to seek revenge. John Slade, played by Bernie Casey, Hammer, Isaac Hayes, Slammer, Jim Brown, Kung Fu Joe and the former Pimp of the Year fly guy join up with Jack to avenge the death of Jack's brother Junebug. Chris Rock makes a brief appearance as the annoying customer who risks his life by irking rib joint owner Hammer. Other cameos include Robert Townsend, Clarence Williams III's, Eve Plum, yes, Jan from the Brady Bunch, David Allen Greer, and Kim Wayans. It's a fun movie, you should watch it. But first, you should ask yourself, what does this have to do with Sukkot? That film didn't star the late great Powers Booth, or even Shirley Booth as Hazel. Oh, that last bit was a, a shout out to any podcast listeners of a demographic that would remember Hazel from early 1960s TV. I'll give an even bigger shout out to anyone who remembers that Shirley Booth is one of only about two dozen winners of the Triple Crown of Acting, having won an Academy Award, two Emmys, and three Tonys. I'd even mention Boothby, Ray Walston's brief character on Star Trek The Next Generation, but some of you are starting to make me feel older than I am. But before you go to Wikipedia or IMDb to check them out, what does any of this have to do with Sukkot? The classic Wayans Brothers film, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, is actually based on a much older film. This fact is so obscure that the Wayans brothers themselves don't even realize it. I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, the parody of 1970s black exploitation films, is actually unwittingly based on I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, a parody of the 1970s BCE booth exploitation films. Since you won't find footage of this film on YouTube or any subscription services anywhere, and even the cast doesn't list it in their IMDb credits or ever talk about it in interviews or memoirs, the best way to explain the booth exploitation genre of Sukkot films is to tell you the story of this parody of it. In I'm Gonna Get You Sukkah, the biblical character Joshua, played by Jerry Seinfeld, returns home from being one of the 12 spies Moses sent into the Promised Lands. As I said before, this really happened. It read the book of Numbers. To find his brother, Jehoboam, played by Sammy Davis Jr., has died from an overdose of gold, having accidentally drunk some of the melted gold left over from the Israelites' punishment for making the golden calf. That part's also based on actual events. This time, read the book of Exodus. Jehoboam's death left his young wife, played by Winona Ryder, and mother, played by Madeline Kahn, alone to fend for themselves. His mother throws two of Korach's rebels, Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner, through a wall down a flight of sand dunes, forcing them to need to build a new sukkah to protect themselves from the heat of the Sinai Desert. You can also read about the Korach Rebellion in the middle of the Book of Numbers. The Book of Numbers has some spicy stuff going on, doesn't it? The two claimed to have come from Mr. Big, 
the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, played by Woody Allen, saying Mr. Big wanted 5,000 shekels to make up for the gold Jehovah drank. Joshua recruits his friends, played by Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder, Henry Winkler, and Alan Arkin, to go after the Kohen Gadol and avenge his brother's death. Joshua brings his small army to the Kohen Gadol, who in an epic biblical scene with lots of dramatic music and hundreds of non-union extras, explains that he didn't send those two guys to collect from the mother in the first place, but would be happy to build Joshua's family a new sukkah and take the rest of the melted gold off his hands so nobody else actually drinks it. Joshua posed dramatically in a zooming close-up and agreed. Then they ate, as one does after basically any event when one's Jewish. Joshua bumps into Moses, played by Dustin Hoffman, who spills his sacramental wine on the holy map of the desert, dooming the Israelites to wander the desert for 40 years, even though he'd just been there and you'd think would remember the path. The film ends with a special appearance of the Almighty, which, of course, can be played only by one man who once said he was cast in the part because he was the actor closest in age to the actual deity, George Burns. Once Sukkot ends and Simchat Torah celebration decibels die down, we approach the Hebrew month of Cheshvan, the second month of the year, a month where the rabbis wisely included no major or even minor Talmudic holidays. After all the high holidays in Tishrei to start the year, this is a welcome break. Also, after the lesson the rabbis learned from the high holy day dishes disaster, they wanted to give themselves a full month to take down their sukkahs. Though if you look around today, you'll see that even a full month often isn't enough time for everyone to get around to it. Well, that's it. After all of that, you have some Sukkot music and films to catch up on, don't you? But I'm glad you caught up on this first. Rear Pew Mirror is my longtime humor column, and this episode was based on, well, actually no column in particular. I've mentioned this film, I'm going to get you Sukkah before, but never really explained it all until now, with you. Please follow Rear Pew Mirror on your podcast platform of choice and tell your friends about it. If for some inexplicable reason you didn't like it, tell your friends about it when you're mad at them. Either way, share this episode with them so they can hear for themselves. You can read past columns at rearpewmirror.com and follow Rear Pew Mirror on Facebook. Also, check out Rear Pew Mirror's home publication, Southern Jewish Life Magazine, at sjlmag.com for more legitimate news and facts than you'll ever hear from me here. I'll talk to you again next time. Be good out there. See, it really is a Sukkot song. It ends with a big ah, and then as the fade out happens at the very end, didn't you hear one of them went main? Telling you, go back and listen to it sometime.